Hey, Jay, what you been up to? Oh, I have been reading so much Silver Age Marvel. Nice. Any good X cameos? Not really, but that's because I'm deliberately mostly reading pre-X-Men. Ooh, they do guest star in Fantastic Four number 28. Excellent. What are they up to? Uh, you know, trying to kill the Fantastic Four. What? Why? Professor X told them to. He was very adamant about it. I don't know why terrible things he does still surprise me. Okay, in his defense, he was kind of possessed this time. By whom? Puppet Master. Uh, he's this Fantastic Four villain who controls people by sculpting duplicates of them out of radioactive clay. That seems dubious. Look, it was the Silver Age. Radiation was great. Mm, fair enough. But wasn't Professor X's identity a secret? How did Puppet Master know what he looked like? Oh, Puppet Master didn't, but he was working with the Mad Thinker who... Knew who Professor X was? Took a lucky guess. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 266 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back uh, to me. I, I spent a week in uh, rural Michigan with my partner's family. One of them got married, and it was really nice. But I am happy to be back in, uh, in a city now. I didn't realize what a city dweller I had become. So yes, it's nice to be home, and it's nice to be talking about, uh, what is it this time, X-Factor. Did the cat miss you? The cat was so needy when we got back. Our housemate totally took care of her, and that was great. But she was basically squawking and uh, laying on us the second we would sit still for even a moment. She has a lot of feelings. She has a lot of feelings, and they all come out in squawk form and headbutt yeah. form. Yeah. She's a good cat. Mm-hmm. So... We're going to be talking about X-Factor today, but wanted to mention first something that you could do to really help us out. Yeah, so um, way back in the dawn days of the show, we used to regularly remind people to review us on iTunes and the other platforms where they listen to the show, and somewhere in the middle we just sort of forgot to keep doing that. So, so this is our official reminder and request again that if you like the show, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever places allow you to review podcasts. If you don't like us, you know, please keep your opinions to yourself. It actually really helps people find the show and we really appreciate it. So yeah, if you haven't done so, please do. And you could, I don't know, is can can they review us on, on Yelp? I bet they can. I don't like Yelp. I don't know. Do we have to have a physical location for that? I, I think you should review us on completely inappropriate platforms, personally. That seems entirely reasonable. Both inappropriate in terms of irrelevance and inappropriate in terms of like obscene. Oh man, so the best inappropriate in terms of obscene platform, I don't know if it still exists, but did you ever see to critique my dick pic? No, but I can actually see that being like a valuable service. Okay, it was this terrific blog where people could send in their dick pics, and the the person who was, was an art historian or an art critic would critique them based on things like composition and lighting. I love that. Although now I'm just imagining sending in a picture of like Nightwing of Dick Grayson and then the uh, critic just going off about what a jerk he could be. See, I, I'm just imagining, you know, sending in pictures of random things like like when people send um, rating dogs, um, other stuff and the, the whole thing that led to their good dogs, Brent. Huh. I, I'm tangentially familiar with rating dogs. I mean, the concept of it. It's good. They're good dogs, Brent. 
You know who else probably likes dogs? Most of the members of X-Factor. It seems likely. Well, one of them is sort of a canine herself. So there you go. Before we dive in, let's get a little bit of background on the current and past states of everyone's favorite government-sponsored mutant team. And that team has fewer people than it used to. Who do we have? Well, not Jamie Madrox. Yeah, he died of the legacy virus, and it was it was really sad. Genuinely sad. Or did he? We'll get to that. But as far as the people who do remain... Still alive, we've got Polaris, fabulously green-haired mistress of magnetism and Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter. And enormous jokester strong guy and recently restored to psychological independence teenage werewolf Wolfsbane. And that's kind of it for now. I mean, I guess there's Forge. He's still their boss. Yeah, but he's off in space being sexy in X-Men Unlimited number five. I miss back when comics, if a character was in one place, would not have them in a second simultaneous place. Yeah, that was good, but I feel like Wolverine kind of ruined it. Damn it, Logan. You ruined everything. I guess there is Random, the surly mercenary they've been working with lately, but he is decidedly not part of X-Factor, and why would you even suggest that? Yeah, he is adamantly still an independent contractor. Still sort of affiliated with the team is their previous government liaison, Val Cooper. They're not on great terms, though. As for X-Factor's previous field leader, Havoc, Alex Summers, well, a few issues ago, he agreed to let sympathetic villain Haven attempt to cure Jamie Madrox of the legacy virus, and that went poorly and Jamie died. Havoc is now off brooding in Hawaii. That's right, he quit the team. Sunfire would be proud. I think it takes more than that to make Sunfire proud. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. He'd probably have to quit, like, at least two or three times. Mm-hmm. Now, Strong Guy was Madrox's best friend and took it pretty hard when Madrox died, but he and Wolfsbane have been excellently supportive buds to one another and did not quit their day jobs, unlike their boss. They are, however, taking a break from the team, but we'll get back to that shortly. But it hasn't all been death and resignation lately, because Polaris recently found out why assassins had been repeatedly trying to kill her. Or at least, she'd apparently found out. Now, what she discovered, or what she thought she discovered, was that a government project had wanted to work with her as a counter to Magneto a while back, and a rogue agent decided that the best way to do that would be mind control. What we know in X-Factor doesn't, though, is that the seemingly very reasonable government lady who explained all this to the team is actually possessed by malice. Malice is a psychic entity who used to work for Mr. Sinister and possessed Polaris for a really long time back in the day. Malice usually takes the form of a little choker with a skull on it, and it occurs to me that it would be really hard to tell if Mystique was possessed by Malice. Oh yeah, she's got skulls all over, it's true. But, right, what's one more? I don't know why Polaris is still mad, though. I mean, yeah, she may have had her body and mind taken over for months, but at least she got some pretty sweet giant hair and a rad supervillain outfit out of the deal. I mean, that's worth something, right? No. Maybe. Well, listeners, you be the judge, if you want. But in the meantime, we'll talk about X-Factor number 103, Friends and Family. This issue is plotted by J.M. DeMattis, scripted by Todd DeZago, penciled by Jan Dersima, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And, oh man, this arc right here, these are J.M. DeMattis' last issues, and he's not writing, he's just plotting. However... I'm really happy that we've got Dursima for a solid several issues, because I really like her art. 
I also really like Todd DeZago. He's the person who uh, scripts this arc and, in fact, will go on to script with John Francis Moore's run after this. His dialogue is actually really, really good. I'm going to miss Jam DeMattis as a writer, but I think I might like DeZago's dialogue even a little bit more. Yeah, DeZago has a really, really solid grip on the character voices at this point. Um, And I really like, actually, honestly, I really like them as a, a writing team here. I agree. Although Guido does sound kind of weird with the D and wit and was all the time spelled all funky. Yeah, he he occasionally ends up um, being phonetically cockney, which is a little weird. Oh, man. Now I'm just going to imagine him as like the giant child chimney sweep of the book. He's filthy. Like he sweeps children's chimneys? Um, let's go with yes. As for the plot of this book that partially features a child chimney sweep... Let's start out with Havoc. Let's start out with Alex Summers in his ripped tank top and his shades moping tropically. And I have to wonder, I mean, I I get why Alex is upset. He had a teammate die and he blames himself for it. But did Cyclops feel this way when Thunderbird died way back in the Bronze Age? Yeah, but Cyclops had an angry Claremontian narrator to snap him out of it. Oh, that's a good point. Um, I I gotta say, though, Alex is... Alex is brooding as one could brood only and specifically in the early to mid-1990s. Pretty much so. And maybe that's why he does not, in his guilt, blow open a demon cairn and release a demon the way Cyclops did when he was brooding after his teammate's death. No, no, that's late-70s brooding. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, that's how you can define a decade. By its brooding. 80s brood is just the space guys. Legit. But suddenly, things are much better because a scantily clad Polaris shows up. She found him. Uh, She found him, and she is here with what appears to initially be melodrama and then comes full circle in a much, much more Polaris line. Our hearts and souls are bound together. I know where you are when I look in my heart. I know how you feel when I look in your eyes. We live for one another, and I know we die for each other. I'd go to the ends of the earth for you. And I traced your credit cards. Man, I really like them. I really like the extent to which, like, any time that they go into that sort of sappy version, they 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 become smartasses about it. Their characters, you know, I feel like this is a relationship it's really hard to get invested in, largely because both of them are characters who are disproportionately plagued by inconsistent writing and sort of slapdash characterization. But... The dynamic that's established between them in this series and this era is one that I really, really like. I completely agree. Yeah, I I miss that. I mean, I kind of get why the characters have been taken in other directions in recent years, but in the comics, I think this is my favorite Polaris and my favorite Havoc. My favorite Polaris overall, of course, is from The Gifted. I feel like they could make really good BFF axes. Yeah, I'd love to see more of that. Uh, I don't know. Who knows? I don't think they've been uh, put on any of the current um, New Era lineups, but we do know that more books are coming. Yeah, and th- I, yeah, and again, I think this is a dynamic that would translate really, really well to that. So they have they have a long, heartfelt conversation, um, after which Polaris decides that there has been enough brooding and it's time for them to go surfing. And this is where it comes from that Havoc surfs. I, I had never really pinpointed the issue, but I, I guess this is where X-Men Evolution got it. Yeah, although here he's surfing on magnetic waves, because why not? And then they go magnetic volcano diving? Put that in your dissertations, guys, if you ever finish them. Okay, that is legitimately awesome, and I do really, really, really appreciate that the writers here remembered. Well, okay, they they made them geologists instead of geophysicists, but still, they remembered. 
Yeah, close enough. I also myself appreciate that Polaris tells Alex that shearing people up is her second mutant ability, and she'll show him her third later. Polaris is such a wonderful flirt with Alex. Um, it's it's actually just that thing where you can bend back your thumb and touch your wrist with it. No, oh, well, I mean, different strokes, I guess. You know, you don't want to do that while you're diving into a volcano. You need you really need access to both hands. Mm. Well, as all of this volcanic flirtation occurs, someone's watching. It's an old woman in a moo-moo. This is specifically Beatrice Connors. No relation to the lizard as far as I know. Um, and she is, she's possessed by malice. We discovered that at the tail end of her last appearance in the comic. And she is, she is on the beach, of course, reading a tale of, of Anne Rice's The Tale of the Body Thief. Yeah, I love all the little books here, all the little subtle snarky references. That makes it really feel like X-Factor. She also murders a poodle named Trixie for no particularly good reason, and then murders a couple of vacationers and steals their room. The thing is, I feel like a lot of the things she does would be more convenient to do without murder. Probably true. I I think it might come down to the fact that, you know, her name is Malice. Yeah, Malice, not, you know, Mayhem. I don't know. Malice can lead to Mayhem. I suppose. But shouldn't she, like, steal people's identities and credit cards and use them to buy morally questionable things or something? I don't know. I feel like- I feel like Malice to me implies more forethought and more subtlety. Yeah, well, she's trying with the subtlety. We'll get to that later. And speaking of subtle things, I really appreciate the way Dursima draws not just Beatrice, not just Malice, but specifically the choker around Beatrice's neck. It's clearly on very, very tightly. And Beatrice is an older woman, so her skin's kind of wrinkly and loose around her neck. And it just seems to be squished in so uncomfortably. Like, you see all those wrinkle lines just getting pulled into the way-too-tight choker. And for me, that's a great way to draw malice to really just visually imply what a violation it is to be possessed by or just how little she cares about the well-being or even comfort or really anything positive of the bodies that she or survival yeah exactly yeah i thought that was a really good touch and that's a really good bit of of visual storytelling well in the shining post-coital morning malice possesses havoc and a still glowing uh, metaphorically lorna wakes up to a choker complimenting his glorious 90s mullet yeah this is i'm I'm a little sad that havoc's hair settled here because it was it was getting really ridiculous and dramatic and and this is just sort of i mean it's it's a very brian braddock haircut yeah well and we'll get to that later too because later on he looks totally like brian so polaris is pretty upset for a couple of reasons but she was possessed by malice for over 30 issues of Uncanny X-Men. She was possessed for a really long time. So this is kind of one of her biggest nightmares. Malice coming back and not even possessing her, but possessing the person she loves most. Yeah, and having to face Malice in that form. Um, That extends into X-Factor 104, which has the same creative team. Man, you know, we were talking about liking gender Sima's art, and one of the things I really like about her is that when I say she draws everyone super ripped, I mean everyone. Oh, yeah, men. It's not just the dudes. Uh, Right. I mean, even that little dog that Malice kills is pretty ripped. Miles. Yeah. Miles. So Lorna's upset about the whole possession thing, but Malice is pretty upset herself, too. Yeah, so originally Malice was into the idea of possessing Lorna, but then after they stayed together for too long, they were basically inextricably linked, and it took Malice 
a long time to escape. Part of why Lorna was possessed for so long was that it took her that long to shake it off. But part of it was also that Malice couldn't get away from Lorna either. Yeah, we found that out back in Uncanny number 239. That is back from 1988. That is back from Inferno. Inferno. So, yeah, way to dig deep, Dematis, but not as deep as Jonathan Hickman is digging in House of X and Powers of Ten right now. Jeez. uh. Yeah, that man's got a pneumatic drill. Well, now, as it turns out, Sinister is getting the band back together, and he wants Malice back on Polaris, and Malice has decided that the best way to avoid that fate is to, you know, get get a jump on things and kill Lorna. Now, Malice started out trying to handle this with some degree of subtlety. She engineered the entire concept of the Polaris Protocols and the subsequent assassination attempts to try to get Lorna off the map without having to take the direct approach, but... Now she's decided that if you want something done right, you might as well do it yourself. Yeah, she went to such lengths just to avoid Mr. Sinister's attention. Like, I almost feel bad for her. Yes, she enslaves other people, but she's been enslaved herself. It's very much a cycle of abuse thing going on here. I mean, I think it's more that Mr. Sinister is mean to everyone. Well, there you go. Cycle of meanness, then. Now, I mentioned the direct approach. So she's she's using Havoc to attack Polaris and she keeps on saying that she's she's using his his full unbridled powers, and it really seems like they should be doing more damage here. Yeah, I mean, they're blasting Polaris uh, across the beach and the room and whatever, but she's just wearing a lacy lingerie outfit after her sexy time night with Alex, and it is not even slightly frayed. So I guess give someone else a drink. Or just stare longingly at a closed bottle? Um... It's it's not even the outfit so much that 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 throws me for a loop as like the fact that she's not dead. I every explanation I can think of for this is is iffy. I mean, it's maybe maybe she's still super tough from from the Zaladane power swap. Maybe she's throwing up a magnetic shield at the last minute. But you would think Dursima would draw like shiny green energy stuff if that was the case. Well, his powers are hitting her, but they're not, they're not burning, like, they're just throwing her. The only other possibility I can think of is that she's secretly a Summer's brother, which seems unlikely. Oh, but not impossible. Man, um, it, it, no, no, the Maximoff family tree and the Summer's family trees are complicated enough without overlaps. And yet. See, that's the real reason that Havoc and Polaris can never be together. Mmm. Lorna manages to get away from Alex for long enough to go back to their cabin, where she finds a very confused and no longer possessed Beatrice Connors, who last remembers attending a conference about the Magneto Protocols, but handles the knowledge that she's been possessed for months and then deposited in Hawaii in someone else's muumuu with remarkable aplomb. I feel like she's a little bit like Val Cooper. You work with enough weird superhuman stuff for long enough, nothing really phases you. Unfortunately, she is hella doomed because malice-possessed Alex grabs her, is gonna use her as a hostage until Lorna surrenders, apparently kills her, but before malice can kill Lorna, Sinister shows up, and oh man, Sinister shows up with with yet another one of his brilliant, stupid entrance lines. Oh, I wouldn't do that, malice. Or your misery will be all the more. I'm not even mad. Sinister's got a sinister. That's right. But 
and an entirely different part of the country, let's go to Rhinebeck, New York, and in fact, back into some of the story bits from number 103, because Guido and Wolfsbane are on vacation. So, I it, it, it didn't occur to me until I was reading this issue, but is is the fact that Guido is from Rhinebeck why he's knitting in the most recent New Mutants series? I'm missing a reference here, Jay. Okay, so Rhinebeck is is the home of one of the largest um, wool and fiber art festivals. Oh, I mean, that would make a lot of sense. I'm not sure if that was a deliberate connection, but I'm going to go ahead and say that probably it was because it makes me happy to think so. It's super cool and I really want to go, but I'm going to be out of the country this year. Curses! I mean, at least you'll be out of the country. Like, traveling awesome places. Well, and out of the country. (laughs) Yeah, well, there is that. So... Guido is still in mourning. Like we mentioned in the previously on segment, Madrox was his best friend for a long time on the team. So he's decided he's going to take a road trip back to his hometown. And because he and Wolfsbane are super best buds these days, and she's just gotten out of a weird situation of her own, he invites her along. Yay, we get to see Guido and Rain hang out. I love their friendship so much. They are... You know, they were, we, we saw them sort of starting to get closer and I re- I just, I love their dynamic. I love the things they bring out about each other. So I don't know if we've actually talked about this on the podcast, but one of my favorite elements of their friendship is that it's just a friendship. There are so few examples of completely platonic relationships between men and women in comics. And for them, they're just buds. And there's never any question about that. That's just what their dynamic is. They're super good buds, too, and they're super good buds in ways that defy a lot of sort of the expectations about their relationship and a lot of the assumptions that go with each of the characters. Yeah, it's awesome. They're hanging out with somebody who's not so much their bud, though, because conveniently enough, the first car heading north was Random's Convertible. So he's being all grumpy, driving them through the snow and complaining the whole time. Well, because he has to drive through the snow with the top down so that Guido will fit. Yeah, it's pretty great. One of the little details I enjoy about this is that because the top's down and therefore it's very cold, Rain's in her furry wolf hybrid form, and later when she goes inside, she's in her fully human form. It's not commented on, but it's just a nice little bit of visual reminders uh, about how her powers work. She does mention, though, that they've they've got um, heaters and temperature controls within their costumes. I also thought that she was smoking briefly because there's one bit where you can see her breath, but it's like a super narrow, um, narrow plume. And it really looks like cigarette smoke. Oh, well, I'm glad she doesn't. That's a dangerous habit. Yeah, I, I, it's really hard to imagine Rain picking that up, at least at this point in her life. Mm-hmm. So Wolfsbane's trying to be nice to Random, saying, hey, you know, if he joined the team, like Forge has been saying, then Forge could make him one of those Unstable Molecules costumes and he wouldn't be cold. And I love Random's jerky response to her. Rub a lamp, kid. That is the jerkiest, most random way of saying you wish that I've heard, and I really want to adopt that. Except I try to be nice to people, so I probably wouldn't say it, but still. Aw. Uh, yeah, so they, they go into an, an escalating back and forth. And I like that the point where another balloon censors out what he says, he's just calling her Rin Tin Tin. It's pretty great. Like it looks like it looks like it's a swear, but if you actually like work out the edges of the letters around the around what's covering it, yeah, he's he's just calling her Rin Tin Tin. 
Mm-hmm. That's actually really good balloon placement because the fact that we do have these overlapping speech bubbles just makes it really clear how little they're listening to each other and how much they're just talking over each other. Yeah, yeah. You can do so much with good lettering and good balloon placement. Seriously. Well, they get to Guido's aunt and uncle's place, and Guido introduces Rain to them and to his cousin Anthony. Now, these were the relatives who raised Guido. Um, As you may recall, his parents were crushed by a falling satellite. Yeah, yeah, that goofy bit from Peter David's run, totally canonical. And it's so sweet, they're very welcoming to Guido and to Rain, because of course he's told them so much about Rain. It's genuinely heartwarming, and that's so nice to see in a book, in a franchise, where so much bad shit happens. And not only not only is Guido's family lovely, but all of the neighbors are lovely, too. Guido is very much the returning hometown hero, and everyone really likes him, and he's he's got... I, my favorite is, is the grumpy neighbor who... who who is, is complaining about seeing him everywhere, but he's 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 just, you know, subverting all of the people going on on anti-mutant stuff and go get him, kid. And I, I just, he also sort of looks like Richard Nixon, but like friendlier. Yeah, it's great. Everyone really loves Guido and it makes me really happy because people should love Guido. He's a good dude. He totally is. But cousin Anthony is watching this and he's troubled. He's worrying about being a mutant object of attention like Guido or of getting Parkinson's disease like his dad. He just wants to be normal. Although weirdly, it'll be muscular dystrophy that his dad has later, not Parkinson's disease. Eh, whatever. There are inconsistencies in comics. Yeah, except the inconsistencies are between two issues by the same creative team, which is a little bit suspect. But yeah, yeah, it goes back and forth. Um, now, one of the people in the crowd is a woman named Mary, who Guido knows well, and starts 104 going out to lunch with. Um, Mary had been a candy striper at the hospital that Guido was in when his, mani- when his mutation first manifested, and they had gradually fallen in love. Or he thinks they had. So candy stripers, if you're not familiar, as I understand it, they're not nurses. They're often um, volunteers. They're volunteers. Yeah, and, uh, you know, back during that era, they were mostly teenage girls. Uh, My mother was a candy striper, and the main thing that stuck with me when I was a kid was that candy stripers reminded me of fruit stripe gum that you would see the commercials for all the time, and my parents were really not cool with me having very much sugar, so I never really got to have fruit stripe gum, and so it became this, like, object of fantasy and adoration. I've still never had it. I suspect it's just sort of okay, though. It's pretty bad. Oh, well, I'm less disappointed then. Anyway... This lunch does not go well. After Guido tells a kid that not too many things can hurt him, Mary puts it to the test by telling him apologetically that now she's cool and popular and doesn't need to date weird lumpy guys, and the only reason she was ever with him was that, you know, he seemed like her only option. Okay, let's give Mary slightly more credit. It's basically that Guido says, hey, is the scenario you just mentioned the case? And Mary embarrassingly says, yeah, I guess it sort of is. Now, that still sucks a lot, but she's being... Well, no, she's the one who brings up that she's she's popular and can date whoever she wants now. Okay, yeah, 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 fuck that lady, that sucks. Yeah, Mary, Mary is a huge jerk. First of all, Guido, you are a catch and don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Second, though, like, how hard would it be to say, yeah, you know, I've had time and I just, I, 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 I don't feel like that's where I am. Seriously, use a little tact, Mary. I mean, come on, this is basic human interaction here. Um, well, while this is happening, meanwhile, back at the actual ranch, um, Rain and Anthony are having a really good heart-to-heart. Anthony begins. But I mean, what would you have done if you'd never become a mutant? 
Well, I suppose I... Anthony, you've been asking me these same sort of questions over and over, but I didn't think you're liking the answers. What's troubling you, lad? Well, it's just... All my life I'm gonna have to worry about getting muscular dystrophy and or Parkinson's, like my dad got. I can inherit it. And now I'm getting to the age when I might find out I'm a mutant too and I'm scared. I mean, Guido's my cousin, right? So what are my chances? Hmm. What will you do if neither one of those things happen? Just keep growing up and having fun with my friends. What will you do if you find out you're a mutant or that you have MD? Same thing, I guess. And I didn't ken what you're worried about. You just keep being yourself and make certain you have the kind of friends who love you for who you are, not what you look like or what you can or can't do. Yeah, but you and Guido got really cool powers. What if I end up looking kind of weird or something? Well, I'm sure your family will still love and accept you like they do Guido, and I'll still be your friend. I really love the way this team writes Rain. She's growing up in a really very real way now, and she's kind of stepping into the role that a number of other characters have had for her, being there and listening and talking a younger kid through crises. And this is, it's really neat to, to, to read this and to sort of see that evolution. Yeah, we, we touched upon the idea of the cycle of abuse a little bit ago, and this is sort of the cycle of support. It's almost the inverse. Like, this is what being a good friend or family member or mentor or acquaintance or anything can do. I mean, that shit spreads out. It ripples, you know? Yeah, you know, be be the be the older siblings you wish you had and all of that. Um, speaking of good friendship, uh, Guido comes home and, and Rain gets him to tell her what happened, and she gives him a really good hug and... Man, they're really good friends. They totally are. Yay. Now, meanwhile in Washington, Val Cooper gets alerts about the fight on the beach, um, not via Lorna's attempt to frantically call her, but via, you know, the local police saying, there are two mutants flying around and throwing energy blasts at each other all over the place. What the hell? Um, and she tries to get Quicksilver to come help, but he is busy fighting an alternate reality Black Knight in Avengers number 375, so Val heads off to pick up Rain and Guido herself. And that brings us to X-Factor number 105, Final Sacrifice. Hey, Jay, do you remember that Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie, The Final Sacrifice? Faintly. Uh, the main thing I remember is that the main character was a little kid, but he had this older, grizzled mentor-protector guy named Zap Rousedower, which is basically the best name I can think of. That is a very good name. This issue is plotted by Zap Rousedower, scripted by Zap Rous Wait, no, that's not true. This issue is plotted by J.M. DeMattis, scripted by Todd DeZago, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Andy Lanning, and colored by Glynis Oliver. Hey, Brian Hitch, that's the guy that did a bunch of the Ultimates. So, in a way, he's the guy responsible for the Avengers looks that almost everyone is familiar with through the movies. Good job, Brian. He's got a less realistic style here than he would later have in The Ultimates, but it works well. It makes for a smoother transition from Dursima's slightly cartoony, very comic booky style. Man, she draws rain so well. Mm-hmm. She draws a lot of things so well. I know, I know we're kind of past the a lot of rain part, but she draws rain so well. <laughs> well, let's start not where rain is, but in Honolulu, where Malice slash Alex. Can we just call them Malex? I say yes. I'm pretty sure that that's at least one drug. Yeah, probably. 
Maylocks. Anyway, uh, so Malix actually looks a hell of a lot like Captain Britain here. He's got this mullet. He's incredibly ripped, even more when Hitch draws him than when Dursima did. And he's wearing pajama pants. And that just reminds me of that Excalibur story where Captain Britain was in his own PJ pants fighting most of the Captain Britain Corps because he got kidnapped very quickly from the lighthouse. I love that your like signature Captain Britain look is frantic in pajama bottoms. I mean, that's Brian Braddock, right? No, yeah, that does pretty much cover it. So Sinister gloats at Malice and at, well, everybody really, because he's Sinister. He asks Malice, did she really think she would get away with this, that she could ever really be free? I mean, he's been watching her. Even when she thought she was operating in secret, Sinister knew, just like Sinister's been watching Threnody do all the stuff in his base. Nice little callback to X-Men number 34 or 35, 34, right there. Oh, snap. And Sinister, as you said, has got a Sinister. Of course I couldn't allow your actions to go unpunished. Boys, dinner is served. Because that's right, he brought the Nasty Boys. I, I would like to take this opportunity to note that either Ruckus yells his own name when he uses his powers, or his powers make the sound Ruckus. Oh, actually, I, I went back and looked at that, and Sinister says Ruckus' name when he sends him into battle, and Ruckus uses Sinister saying the word Ruckus and amplifies it into a blast, which is such a narcissistic thing to do, and therefore so appropriate for anyone who hangs out with Mr. Sinister. Okay, that's actually super awesome, but it's still pretty funny. Super awesome, but pretty funny. I think you just described a lot of X-Factor. I think I just described a lot of, well, I, I don't know if I described the, the Nasty Boys as super awesome most of the time. They're fun, though, and nasty. Yeah, so these are these are the glam rockist cohorts, and um, they, are, they are doing a pretty good job of subduing Maliks. When suddenly, Val Cooper, in a government jet, literally drops Strong Guy and Wolfsbane on top of the whole situation. And Strong Guy throws Wolfsbane, do we have a name for this version of the fastball special yet? Well, if it was feral, I would say the hairball special. Aw. Well, it's, 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 he's also doing it as, as a decoy. He's doing it to, as a distraction so he can then then attack them. But, um, gosh. Yeah, I don't know. Listeners, if, if, you've, if you've got any ideas, we, our comments are open and we are, we are eager to hear them. And the people that Strong Guy and Wolfsbane attack are the Nasty Boys, because what they see is a group of supervillains beating up on their leader. Polaris is way too banged up by Plasma Blast to really say much. And Sinister, to his credit, tells them the truth, basically saying, Hey, Malice possessed Havoc, and so I'm fighting Malice with my Nasty Boys. How does Sinister ever expect people to take him seriously? No, I mean, I know the answer to that is that he's he's incredibly effective. Well, he's usually incredibly effective. He's he's legitimately really menacing. But I feel like I feel like he's the guy who who formats his entire life as like collateral proof that he's so scary that he can get away with having sidekicks called the Nasty Boys and he can dress like that and he can talk in puns on his own name and I always come back to uh, my stepdad telling a story about this pair of pink pants that he owned that he'd wear when he would go to bars to shoot pool, and he called them his karate pants because if anybody made fun of him, he would fight them. I don't think he actually fought them because he's very much a pacifist, but, you know, karate pants. I mean, presumably he'd kick their ass at pool. He played pretty seriously competitively for a long time. Yeah, still does as far as I know. 
I really like the phrase karate pants. Me too. Now, it only takes two pages for Polaris to recover enough to tell Strong Guy and Wolfsbane that, no, Sinister's telling the truth, so, like, maybe stop fighting the nasty boys because they're not the enemy here. And after Malix almost kills them all, um, Polaris loses it. She decides that she has had enough. I know what it feels like to be possessed by you. Horrible. A feeling of absolute violation, and I can't let Alex go through with that one second longer. Yeah, she is ready to kill him if that's what it takes for him to not be possessed by Malice. So Sinister says, hey Malice, maybe this would be a good time for you to jump out of Alex's body and into Lorna's. Your fear of repossessing Polaris has blinded you to someone you should fear much, much more. Me. Sinister being sinister is switching sides about every four seconds, and I kind of love him for it. Yeah, yeah, it's what he does best. And there is this great two-page spread as Malice tries to jump out of Alex and into Lorna, but the two of them, Alex and Lorna, are just grasping at each other in agony with this ghostly Malice between them and this smirking Mr. Sinister behind them all because... Alex and Lorna, they don't want to inflict malice on the other. They want to keep malice inside themselves to protect their partner, and malice is being torn apart between them because of it. This is how you do that one scene in Endgame. Oh, yeah, man. It's it's great. So, yeah, malice is caught by Sinister. He just grasps her tortured energy out of the air, drops it into the malice choker, and then basically disintegrates it. Damn, Sinister. I kind of wonder, though, what is up with that choker? Like, is there a backstory for why that is the malice signifier? Because here it's implied it's a physical object, not just sort of a visual representation. Like, I always figured that, you know, Silver Samurai had a really specific power with that sword, but is malice just confined, confined to this one little piece of jewelry? I figure it's a physical object that also kind of manifests as an expression of her. Um... It's simultaneously an expression, but also something that that contains her to some extent. Almost makes me wonder if it's culturally specific. Like, if she was, you know, in a culture that didn't have chokers and had some other garment instead, if it would be that. But as is, she's from the 90s, so... There you go. Hot topic. I mean, I guess she's not technically from the 90s. She's from much earlier than the 90s, but still. Still. Chris Claremont was seeing the future. Is a man ahead of his time? No, man. The way, the way you got you got, you got um, chokers in the early nineties at Claire's. No, oh, okay. I guess I missed a lot of the early nineties in terms of chokers. Anyway, point is, this was all Sinister's plan to get Malice out of Alex's body so he could basically psychically squish her. But being Sinister, he refuses to explain his motivations and just acts like a delightful cryptic jerk. But rest assured, you and your Family are always in my thoughts. And he teleports away with his nasty boys. Nastily. They've got a Boy George concert to open for. One can assume. So, over the course of this issue, we've had little one-page interludes. In fact, labeled interlude one, two, and three. What's been going on in those interludes, Jay? A mysterious figure in a backward baseball cap, hoodie and flannel, wearing specifically green and yellow, lets himself into X-Factor's townhouse. 
the palm print reader authenticates him, and he goes through the packed-up boxes in Madrox's old room to find a photo of Mora. Who could this mysterious stranger, who is clearly Jamie Madrox, possibly be? Well, we find out for sure that it is indeed Jamie Madrox when he looks at a picture of X-Factor on the wall, focuses in on himself, and then just says, Oh my god, which ends the issue. So, yeah, Jamie Madrox is back. Five issues later. I mean, it's not the old Claremont trick of having a character seemingly dead at the end of an issue and then back because something happened at the beginning of the next, but I remember Madrox came back. I just didn't remember it happening this quickly. Yeah, likewise. Interestingly, and related to that, there is a fan letter on the letters page of this issue by famous comedian Chris Gethard. I I think I'm saying that right talking about how much he likes Multiple Man and how Jamie's death was handled super well in number 100. So that's a cool little random thing. Alas for Chris. Um, he, he mentioned in his, in his later that he really hopes that the death will stick so that um, the, the what was a really well-written death won't be robbed of its impact. Sorry, man. On the upside, there's a lot of really good Madrox stuff later in the X-Universe, so it was worth it, Chris. Don't worry. Back in 1994. You can worry later. Mm-hmm. So that's the Malice arc. And, you know, it's funny. X-Factor is never the book that stands out. Like, it was just sort of always a solid background book in a whole lot of ways, but I consistently enjoy it. And the Dematis run, totally underrated. Like, it's over now. We just covered the end of it, but it's damn solid. Yeah, it's short and sweet. Mm-hmm. Also short and sweet, uh, some of you anyway, are our listeners, and you've got questions. Let's see, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Even though part of what motivated Warpath back in the day was to avenge the death of his brother, he only tried to get revenge on the X-Men, who were only indirectly responsible for his death, rather than Count Nefaria, who was actually responsible for Thunderbird's death. Why do you think that no writer up until now has had Warpath go after Count Nefaria? Yeah, I mean, Count Nefaria was in over 50 issues of various comics since then, since he fought the X-Men at the beginning of the giant size, only while different era. That is genuinely astonishing. Oh man, I was reading through his Marvel fandom entry on the internet, and his story gets weird. There's a lot of Ionic stuff going on. Did you know that he's an Ionic vampire? What? Yeah, I don't actually know what that is. I tried reading the entry it, and I was still confused. Does it mean that he only drinks blood with a positive or negative charge? You would think so. Apparently he devours ionic energy, which I guess is energy with a positive or negative charge, which is a lot of energy. That's most energy. Like, that's <laughs> what he eats electricity? Maybe he just uh, maybe he just licks electrical outlets. That doesn't seem very super villainous, but uh, I guess it's Wait, little... does he eat magnetism? Is he the ultimate counter to the magic and miracles of magnetism? Maybe, but if he is, they haven't really explored it too much. Anyway, so yes, Thunderbird did indeed die trying to kill Count Nefaria as Count Nefaria was fleeing from the X-Men when they defeated him. James, that being Warpath, uh, maybe he figured that if the X-Men hadn't given John, Thunderbird, a foolish cause, like, you know, fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them and all that, then John would have gone with his usual fuck-all-you-guys attitude and just stayed put and not gotten himself blown up. I mean, it's almost like Nefaria's presence was irrelevant— And that James was maybe just looking for a way to get his brother off the hook for his actions. James idolized John, and so I can see him not wanting to say, yeah, my brother did a stupid thing because he's a hothead, but instead saying, 
these jerks put all these dumb ideas in his head, and that's what led him to do this act, and he was only doing what he thought was right. See, that's much more dignified and much more reasonable than what I was going to suggest, which is that despite the tragic events surrounding him, Warpath remains incapable of saying the name Nefaria without giggling, which kind of takes the thrill out of revenge. Oh yeah, that was kind of going with my uh, second theory, which is that James was embarrassed by the idea of fighting a guy who makes animal people and calls them the Animen, and so he figures he can at least keep some dignity if the X-Men are his nemeses instead of those silly people. Who was it who made the animates? Wasn't that Magneto? Uh, he made mutates. What were the animates? I don't remember. Was that a Saturday morning cartoon? I don't know. I I, I lose track of all of the animal people sometimes. Mm, it's a common problem around these superhero parts. Oh, actually, no, I just remembered. I think it was um that uh, guy who uh, killed Doug Ramsey, whose name I can't remember, the animator who made the animates. Right. That makes sense. There we go. Mystery solved. Hooray! Lesbian Jubilee asks on Tumblr, Sunspot and Monet are some of my favorite X-Men characters, but they are often whitewashed when they appear in current comics. As a consumer, is there anything I can do to get the artists and editors to stop this whitewashing? There absolutely is. I mean, there's nothing you can do that will be 100% effective or conclusive, but there are a lot of approaches you can take to, to addressing this and to bringing it up and to getting, getting creative and publisher attention to it. So... This is something that actually um, Alana Levin and I ran a workshop on, not this specifically, but the larger top topic of um, overlaps between fandom and activism and ways to translate between the two of them um, We at, at FlameCon. And my short version of this is go into those conversations assuming, if not good intentions, then lack of intentions. Um, there's, there's a great video online, and I know I've brought it up here before, and I will bring it up again because I, I will keep recommending it till the end of time, which is, it's called How to Tell Somebody They Sound Racist or something like that. It's by Jay Smooth. And it's a great guide to basically calling that stuff out and bringing it up in a way that leads to dialogue and conversation and and to, to progress. Now, it's complaining about stuff loudly online is fine and it's an entirely reasonable goal to do but if you're actually trying to get people to to look at stuff and change it what you generally want to do is 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 engage directly with them um write them letters like physical letters or emails not not just on social media talking about how much you love those characters what they mean to you and how it impacts how it impacts you to see this give specific examples you know the extent to which that kind of communication matters and makes its way into and influences people's approaches is, is something that I, I really can't overemphasize. It's not always something you see directly, but knowing and seeing personal ways that what they do impact readers and has you know, the potential to impact readers really positively is, I think, something that, that makes a difference and that really does influence creators and editors and publishers. Yeah, well said. Uh, nothing to add over here, but I completely agree. That said, public pressure campaigns can work sometimes too. It really depends. Um, I would start with the first, see how it goes, and then escalate from there if you feel like you need to. There are a lot of tools for that. Um, Aang Ain't White and the, the anti-whitewashing and Avatar campaign is, I think, a really, really good example of a very well-executed publicity and public pressure campaign. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. 
Angry with your Montana narrator, go. Oh, Robert Barber, what a mess you've made. By trying to run from your problems, you've only invited them along for a ride, sowing destruction wherever you went. And now, not even Jason Jones is safe. I hope you're very proud of yourself, Robert. At least for as long as you have time to be. And the mic here, of course, inevitably goes to the glamest of all villains, Mr. Sinister. Malice, malice, malice. Why can't you just do as you're told and possess Polaris again? She has fabulous hair that you only improved, and almost all of Magneto's power without his grumpy face. Is it her fiery personality? Her occasionally questionable costume taste? Ah, I know. It's her name. The name Lorna Dane may reference both a classic novel and a delicious cookie, but it's just so... tiresome. May I introduce you to Tristan Wozniak? Just try savoring those syllables. Wozniak. It's just so... satisfying. Go ahead and possess Tristan so you have a mouth. There we are, Malice. Say it with me. Wozniak. And that's even before we think about the more famous owner of that name. I think I have Steve's DNA here somewhere. Or perhaps John Chicalis. There's that perfect juxtaposition of soft and hard consonants, so like the combination of the double helices of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. And the simple first name proceeds breathtakingly into unexpected complexity, like one of my own wicked schemes. John Chicalis. Yes, perhaps you had best possess John now, Malice. For the alternative to obedience would be... sinister. And with that... Jan Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the euphoniously named Matt Hunter. Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and ExplainTheXMen.com. Listen to the podcast and be sure to drop us a review. Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out our Patreon. There's a link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, Emma Frost goes for a joyride. And Caliban's pecs somehow get even bigger. (laughs) 